If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. You may be familiar with the name of Mrs Beaton, but have you heard of the cookery book writer Eliza Acton? In her new book, The Language of Food, the writer Annabelle Abbs draws out Eliza's story from her largely forgotten legacy, uncovering her quest to write a successful cookery book. Speaking with Emma Slattery-Williams, Annabelle discusses the real history behind her book and describes why Eliza should be remembered as a significant figure in culinary history. The first question I'll ask you is if you could just give a brief overview of your book, The Language of Food. In a nutshell, it's the story of uh, Eliza Acton, who I refer to as the first domestic goddess, but she was really the first sort of modern cookery writer, writing for a a middle-class audience that perhaps didn't know how to cook uh, and showing them how to use new ingredients and and how to cook for a much smaller household than typically cookbooks had had in mind, which were for much bigger, bigger households. And it's a story really of the 10 years that she spends, which I've condensed right down into one year, that she spends writing her cookery book, which is called Modern Cookery for Private Families. And uh, it's a story of her and and her assistant. She worked with a a girl called Anne Kirby. And we know from the censuses that they both live together in this same house uh, cooking. And uh, really, I'm exploring several themes, but mainly looking at... um, the place of, of food, how it how it changed their lives, and how it changed her life because she was quite a, a remarkable woman. So, who was Eliza Acton, and how much do we know about her life? Well, we don't know as much as uh, I, I would like to have known. She left no will that's been found, no letters, no journals or diaries, and she's also uh, didn't leave her manuscripts of either of her cookery books. So, we don't have the original manuscripts. But she did leave two cookery books, one which is 600 pages. So it's a very, very extensive, comprehensive cookery book. And her voice comes comes through loud and clear. And she left also her second cookery book, which was a book about baking bread. And she also left a collection of poems that she had written, I think, about 10 years, 10, 15 years before she wrote her cookery book. So we've got bits of her. Um, but but not not a vast amount. However, we also have obviously a lot of 
uh, you know, the cookery books of that period. So we can see how she carved herself a very different path, really. And we've got some census information. So we've got a few, we've got a few basic facts. We know a bit about her family. We know where her sisters ended up. We know where her servant ended up. So we've got, I've got enough to, I had enough for some scaffolding, if you like, uh, and enough to find a voice for her that was, you know, I hope as authentic as I could make it. You know, but basically I, I sort of cooked my way into her and I, I you know, res- researching historical novels is something that I do. This is my third, but I had never researched someone by cooking and eating their food. So that was a very different approach for me. Well, as you just mentioned that then, so you, you've tried some of Eliza's recipes. Um, what, what were they like? Are there any that you would recommend? Well, I really like her recipes. There are a few oddities in there. So she works with quite a lot of ingredients that you you can't even buy now. You know, I had to order them from <laughs> had to order them from farm shops. So she you know, she'll do things with whole calf's heads, whole pig's heads, and she'll use a lot of uh, offal. Of course, you know, you just can't find offal when you go to the supermarket now. You, you can't really even find, you know, you can hardly find a kidney now. Although when I was growing up, you know, I pretty much lived off kidney soup. So I felt quite comfortable with a lot of her recipes. Although, interestingly, my, you know, my, my children were a bit like, you know, oh, well, liver, kidneys. So a lot of things that have fallen out of favour, really. Um, but she cooks with lots of vegetables. And we know from her cookery book that she spent time in uh, France and we think she spent time in Italy and there are quite a lot of Italian recipes. There's a recipe, for example, from macaroni cheese. And, and again, dishes that we think of as being quite, quite contemporary, really. You know, she, she's, got, she's got risottos. She's got lots and lots of fabulous French soups and, of course, a lot of English soups, lots of pies, lots of um, cakes and biscuits. Um, but she's also got the first ever section on Jewish food and Jewish recipes. So that was a complete first. And she's also got a whole section on what she calls it foreign cookery, but that mainly includes um, dishes that use a lot of spice. So we would call it Indian cuisine now. But so she's so she's using a lot of spice. And again, that was quite uh, modern, really, because again, this is the time when a lot of spices are starting to come into the market and also lots of ingredients like lemons and things that you know you don't really find widely used in earlier cookery books but you know she she loves lemons and I did keep thinking where's she getting all these lemons from you know how come these lemons are fresh but it's quite possible that she had access to lemon trees and she one of the things I sort of discovered was that her location I think was one of the enablers of her cookery book so she's based in a very specific part of Kent so Kent at that point, of course, is the garden of England. And it's full of orchards and it's full of market gardens. But the town where she's cooking is a town called Tunbridge. And Tunbridge is on the road between Dover and London. So a lot of the imported ingredients that probably never made it to the north of England would have come to her on their way to London. So she did have access to a whole range of ingredients that I'm not sure she would have had if she'd lived in another city. So so I was fascinated by the fact that her geography had clearly played quite an important part in, in the cookery book. So this is set kind of early early to mid-Victorian period. What were cookery books like at the time then? You said they were mainly for maybe more the cooks for the nobility who were cooking big, large banquets. Was there not much for the individual um, family, the, the small family? Well, it's a very good question because there was one book that had come out, uh, I think about 10, about 10 years before Eliza started work, possibly, it was about 10 years. And I think this is what triggered 
her London publisher to say, bring me a cookbook. So the story is that, uh, which is a true story, Eliza had written this collection of poems. It had been reasonably successful, sold often by mainly by subscription, which was the model for the publishing, one of the publishing models then. But it had been reasonably successful and it had been reprinted. And she waited a few years and she developed another select, a big so collection of, of poems. And she went back to her publisher because she really wanted to be a poet. She didn't really want to be a cookery writer at this stage. She went back to her publisher, Mr. Longman, and said, you know, here, here are my poems. Will you publish them? And he said, no. Uh, you know, I'm not interested in poetry. No one reads poetry anymore. What I want is a cookery book. And because she was completely shocked by this, because you didn't really ask a, a middle-class woman, a well-heeled woman, to produce a cookery book. Cookery books up until then have pretty much been produced by, um, you know, sort of work. what I'd call a working cook in a stately home. But there was one, and this book was by Maria Rundell. Uh, she published it anonymously, but it had made her publisher, John Murray, it made John Murray incredibly successful. You know, it was an absolute money spinner. And so Mr. Longman is sort of at this stage eyeing up Mr. Murray, his rival publisher, and he's seen that Maria Rundell's book has really enabled John Murray to publish all sorts of things, including Byron and lots of other things that perhaps he wouldn't have been able to publish. They were all really subsidised by this cookbook, which isn't, isn't widely known. I think it should be widely known. So I think, I think what happened was Mr. Longman saw a great opportunity. He also spotted an opportunity in the market, he spotted this new sort of middle class, this new uh, sort of new breed of woman, really, who has perhaps married a merchant and her husband is wanting to entertain at home for the first time. This is starting to become quite fashionable. And this new young wife, you know, she hasn't cooked because she's a, she's a nice middle class girl. She plays the piano and she could sing and perhaps even paint or speak French. But she, she doesn't know anything about cookery because she's never been in the kitchen. So suddenly she's being asked by her husband to prepare a meal for his, his business associates. And she's also suddenly perhaps being asked to prepare something like a curry. And she's seeing all, all these new ingredients out in the market. And she doesn't really know what to do. And nor does her not terribly well-trained cook or housekeeper. So what Mr. Longman very cleverly spots is this market for a cookery book where you know, the recipes are for much smaller households. They're using some of these new ingredients, but also they include weights and measurements and timings so that the new house, this new woman of the house, the house, this new mistress of the home can say to her cook exactly what she wants and how it has to be prepared. Because, of course, the, you know, these cooks didn't really know then either. So he spots this opportunity and somehow, very cleverly, he realises that Eliza Acton, although she has never boiled an egg, he realises that she has this ability to produce a cookbook. So hats off to him. And of course, she wouldn't normally have, have, have deigned to do a cookery book, should have probably pushed for her poems. But her family situation was such that she didn't really have that, that choice. And, and poetry then, much as today, didn't make money. So her husband had been declared bankrupt. The whole family, the, the whole family home had been sold, everything, you know, the carpets, the, the paintings. And we have still the, the details of this auction so that we know everything was sold. Pillowcases, the whole lot. And he, Eliza's actor, Eliza's actor's father, he fled to France because, of course, back then in, you know, 1820s, 1830s, you were, you were sent to prison uh, for, you know, for going bankrupt. So he fled and suddenly Eliza, who has got, you know, nine siblings and her mother, who's effectively 
bereaved really now. She's got no income, she's got no husband, she's got no home, she's got no cutlery. So Eliza agrees to write this cookery book. Uh, and of course, Eliza's mother, you know, the cookery book at this stage just isn't earning any money. Eliza's mother takes on a boarding house, which was one of the few things that a, a, you know, a respectable middle class down, down at heel woman could do. She could take on a, a boarding house and, and run it for uh, lodgers and people you know, who, knew, who needed a room. So, so they take on this boarding house and it's in that kitchen that somehow Eliza thinks, oh, I can make this work. I can cook for, I can cook for the the boarders and the lodgers and I can also produce this cookery book and somehow she also teaches herself to cook during this period and we don't know how she did that we don't know if she had help from a professional cook um, we, we, we don't know I'm assuming that she would have used books probably what she did use is just is reading all of the books of the, you know, the cookery writers before her but what she did of course was invent the recipe as we know it today so she decided to put a list of ingredients and that had never happened before. And anyone who's cooked from a, an earlier recipe will know it's really difficult because you have to read the recipe several times to try and try and understand, you know, what, what are the ingredients and what order are they being used in? And earlier recipes very rarely made any mention of how long a dish should be cooked for or what heat. There was an assumption that, you know, the other people using the book knew how to cook. And of course, because Eliza didn't know how to cook, she realised that that was really important. Those little details that, you know, we take for granted now. We open a cookery book and you know, if you opened a cookery book and it didn't have an ingredients list or, or tell you how many covers it served or how long it needs to be cooked for, you know, we wouldn't be able to cook from it. So she very cleverly sort of packaged this all up together. And, and that's really what she's perhaps most famous for is, is inventing the recipe that uh, we all work with today. That seems so strange that it wasn't actually that long ago that recipes, you know, we wouldn't have been able to follow them. Just putting the ingredients on, that seems so strange. I know, it seems very obvious to us, doesn't it? <laughs> but, you know, but so she, she, what she did was she put the list of ingredients at the end of the recipe. And of course, what Mrs. Beaton did was she put the list at the beginning of the recipe where it has stayed until, well, still, I think it'll stay at the beginning of a recipe probably forever because that's the obvious place for it. But I was, I was intrigued by the fact that Eliza put it, at, put it at the bottom of the recipe, but that's obviously how it must have worked for her when she was reading the original recipes. She would then probably have written down the ingredients immediately underneath the recipe, and that's where she left it. So you said that Eliza, before she wrote this book, she probably wouldn't have been able to boil an egg. Uh, was it would it have been very uncommon then for middle class women to have had anything to do with the kitchen? Yes, so if you think about what kitchens were like back then, they're not like our our kitchens today. They were always at the back of the house. They were always north facing. They needed to be cool in order to keep you know, milk fresh and things because we have to remember they had no they had no no refrigeration. So they were north facing, which meant they were often dark and gloomy. Um, they were cooking over coal or, or log, you know, log fires. So they were dirty. They were hot. They were smoky. They were smelly. They usually had vermin in, cockroaches and mice and rats and beetles. So this was the least pleasant room to be in in an entire house. So for a 
a, you know, an educated woman, and Eliza had been educated. She had run a girls' school beforehand. She had been a governess. So for an educated woman like Eliza, then to spend 10 years working long, long hours in this a very dirty, smelly room, was really, really unusual. And so, yes, to answer your question, that women before her of her class would not have wanted to go into the kitchen at all. They might have briefed their cook, but it wouldn't have been from the kitchen. It would have been from, you know, a parlour or a, a much nicer, the dining room or something. So it was, it was the least attractive room to be in. So she obviously, to cook, she would have had to spend, and we know she spent 10 years on this particular book, she writes about that, and then she spends years on her, a couple more years on her baking bread book. So we know she must have spent a long, long time in this very unpleasant room. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. She has got the first ever recipe for Brussels sprouts. And... uh, William William Sitwell wrote about this, you know, the first ever recipe for Brussels sprouts. And so it was one of the first things I cooked. I thought, gosh, Brussels sprouts, what can you do with them? And she does this, um, she basically puts Brussels sprouts on toast. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. So the character of Anne Kirby was Eliza's assistant. So she she was a real person, but how much of, of her life in the book is true and how much of it were you did you have to make up? Yes, yeah, so we don't know very much about Anne Kirby. We know that Eliza had this assistant, and we know that Anne Kirby lived in the same house, because if you look at the, the census for 1941, the census for 1951, Anne Kirby is there. So the two of them are clearly in the same house. Uh, and I've assumed that Anne Kirby is living in. She probably would have lived in. And the only other thing we know about Anne Kirby is what happens to her later, because in the later census, she's no longer working with Eliza. So at some stage, they part ways. Um, so that's 
And we know where Anne Kirby ends up. She ends up in Greenwich. She ends up not as a cook. And that's a very that was a very interesting fact to me. She's in well, in the sense that she's down as a as a servant. And what's strange about this is that she with a, a woman with 10 years cooking experience who's worked on this, you know, very famous cookery book at this stage, best-selling, would probably have been snapped up as a cook. So the fact that there's either a mistake in the census and she was cooking, we know that she was working for the, the chief pharmacist at, at Greenwich Hospital, a man who's, you know, he's making up the, the medicines and the pills. Um, so, so something, so to my imagination anyway, and this is where I had to rely on my imagination really or sort of you know, invent things because we don't actually know what happened. But in my imagination, something had happened that made her feel that she needed a break from cooking. Uh, so... I could have got that completely wrong and perhaps the census is wrong, but that was how I understood it in in my mind. But I used... The fact that I didn't know anything about her worked to my advantage in some ways because that meant that I could explore other things that I knew were happening in that area. So one of the things that really interested me was that uh, not far, 15 miles from Tunbridge, where Anne and Eliza lived and could there was one of the very earliest um mental asylums as they called it then it was the kent county mental asylum and it had it opened while they were working on the cookbook and uh, i was i was fascinated by this because my i lived with my grandmother who had dementia for 30 years and so all of this is sort of mulling around in my head the idea of uh dementia which of course has always existed and eliza acton's biographer speculates that Eliza actually had dementia at the end of her life. So I've sort of got dementia on very much on my mind. And then I became absolutely sort of obsessed really with this, this um, the Kent County Mental Asylum. And I did quite a lot of research into that. And the, the conditions were, you know, the conditions were absolutely uh, horrific. And I decided that I would use Anne to explore that particular issue and then there were other things I wanted to explore so just the, the level of poverty I wanted to look also at that gulf between the middle classes you know around this time very early Victorian England and the extreme poverty of the of the 1830s so um, I may have got it wrong and Kirby may have been um, you know very wealthy but somehow I doubt it and it gave me a chance to look at that uh, that juxtaposition between someone who lives off um, you know gruel and he's lucky if they have a pinch of salt or a, or a spring onion and someone who has access to this incredible larder of spices and exotic fruits and you know it's this wide range of game that Eliza cooks with and so so that so so Anne's a sort of a device in some ways to enable me to bring in other issues that I thought were would have been pertinent and also to to give the the novel a bit more uh, context and color I, I really liked how you did that in the in the book, using Anne as kind of almost our eyes as to see, you know, these these foods that she would have never heard of and meals that were so alien to her. Um, but going back to the um, asylum, uh, how did you research that? Because that's quite a quite a dark part of the novel. So, what what did you discover while you were looking up the Kent County Asylum? Well, the the building still exists, and it's now luxury flats. Um, but if you go, if you go and visit it, it's very, it's a very strange place, even to this day. So a lot of the trees are the same trees that would have existed 200 years ago. So it's got these very huge, dark, evergreen trees and um, it's very austere. So the architect, 
the, the man who designed it was also the architect of Maidstone Jail. And, you know, little, little things like that really s- stuck home, actually, because it sort of it was an indication of, of how how they viewed um, people who they, they thought should be locked up. You know, it was literally a locking up. It was sort of more of a prison than than some of the later. So the later Victorian asylums, they really changed over that period, but the early ones were quite horrific. And I did discover um, some accounts that some inspectors had gone in, I think maybe about seven years after the asylum had opened, a team of inspectors went in. So again, this must have been a, a new initiative where they, they went and inspected some of the lunatic asylums, as they called them. And they left a report of what they had found there, which was perhaps what they might have found in the other asylums they they went and, and looked at. But there were accounts of, um, you know, patients who had been manacled to their beds for two years and people being strapped to chairs. I mean, really quite, quite horrific, quite upsetting things, particularly when you think it's not really that long ago. So in some ways... That was quite that. That filled me with hope. It was quite an optimist. That was quite optimistic because I saw how much you know how dramatically that has changed in uh, actually less than two hundred years. So that gave me cause to hope. But you know, it's always I think it's always good to remember. <laughs> it was always good to remember that things you know things were very very different. So so that was the asylum, and just you can go and have a little walk around it, but you can't go inside now, and it would look very different now anyway. So going back to the food, um, is it right that in Eliza's book there is the first reference to what we know today as Christmas pudding? Uh, No, Christmas puddings had existed before. Her Christmas pudding recipe is a particularly good one. Quite a few chefs still use her Christmas pudding recipe. And my mother always cooked Eliza Acton's Christmas pudding recipe. And I've had that all my life. And it's a very good recipe. But she has got the first ever recipe for Brussels sprouts. And uh, William William Sitwell wrote about this, you know, the first ever recipe for Brussels sprouts. And so it was one of the first things I cooked. I thought, gosh, Brussels sprouts, and what can you do with them? And she does this, um, she basically puts Brussels sprouts on toast. And then she pours over lots and lots of melted butter. So she uses, she uses a lot of butter. I think they, they didn't, she uses olive oil as well, but mainly, mainly butter is her, her favourite sort of ingredient for sauces or for dressing vegetables so that is the first recipe ever for brussels sprouts and um what else does she have she has lots of she has lots of recipes for uh things that i you know i was surprised at like um dandelion leaves so she's obviously out foraging you know collecting what we would call weeds and turning them into salads and she may have picked that up in france where you know dandelion dandelion leaf salad has always been has always been very popular she's cooking with all sorts of uh, birds for example that are now protected and virtually virtually extinct so she cooks for example with things like corn crakes and you know first I, I didn't know what a corn crake was there were obviously lots of corn crakes in Kent then but now there are hardly any corn crakes in the UK I think there are a few up in Scotland and they're and they're you know they're very protected so it was quite interesting to look at the the huge range of ingredients. And I think that's something when we look back, we think our ancestors, we think they ate a lot of potatoes and we think they maybe ate a lot of apples and 
perhaps, you know, uh, they ate rabbit and meat and uh, bread. But actually, she was using all sorts of ingredients and all sorts of varieties of, for example, pears. So if we open a cookery book and we look for something with a pear, and it'll be called a pear tart or a pear pie, upside down pear cake or something. But she will specify the type of pear that she wants us to use and the type of apple. And she uses apples that have called yeah she'll specify that she wants you to use a pippin or um a codlin and again these varieties of apples some of them were completely unfamiliar to me i don't even know if, if anyone grows them anymore but i loved i loved learning about you know how 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 they what they ate and how they ate it and it was so much more sophisticated than i imagined i'm not sure how much brussels sprouts on toast might catch on but are there any any recipes in there that we we still we would still find very recognisable today? Yes, yes. So she has lots and lots of pies, lots of meat pies and fruit pies and fruit tarts. She has um, lots of of things that you wouldn't expect. She has macaroni cheese. She has um, Milanese risottos. She has lots of really lovely vegetable soups. And again, I think a lot of those were inspired by her time in France. She does an amazing apple and ginger soup, which is sort of thing that you would go to a restaurant and eat now. It sounds you know, just very, very contemporary, doesn't it? And she, you know, she always had a stock pot going. And I love that idea that every every bit of peeling, every bone went into this stock pot, you know, and now we would call that zero waste. But, you know, she was doing zero waste 200 years ago. Everyone, everyone was doing zero waste 200 years ago. Everything got eaten. Every bit of the animal was used. And even if it wasn't used to eat, it was used to make, you know, to make candles or to make sausage skins or to make something. So there was just never any waste. And I, I did think we could really learn. We could really learn from Eliza Acton. Absolutely. So you mentioned earlier Mrs. Beaton, um, who most people recognise the name of. Um, so what happened there? Is it true that Mrs. Beaton kind of took credit for maybe some of Eliza's work and that is why Eliza is not as well known as maybe she should be? Well, there are uh, two re- Well, there's the main reason Eliza is is not as well known as she should be. It's the two reasons actually, but the main reason is that uh, after she died, there wasn't really anyone who was sort of fanning the flames of her legacy, keeping it uh, keeping it going. It seemed to me that her family was a little bit perhaps ashamed of her career as a as a as a as a kitchen cook. Uh, so, so um, there was no, you know, she just didn't. So she didn't have any children, for example. There was no one that had a vested interest in keeping her books out there. So they they did carry on being printed and reprinted, but there was just no one sort of make it, you know, no one sort of, I don't know, publicising or promoting her in any way. And of course, Mrs. Mrs. Beaton had a, a very different scenario. So Mrs. Beaton came along two years after Eliza had died and we now know that about a third of Mrs Beaton's recipes are are Eliza Acton's recipes that Mrs Beaton has sort of very cleverly tweaked or or you know just she's just changed the title or she's taken out some of the the beautiful prose and made it sound a bit more functional and 
those recipes, you know, are, are remarkably similar. And what we forget about Mrs. Beaton, well, we forget, first of all, that she was very young herself. So she, she died when she was 28. Uh, and generally, we think of Mrs. Beaton as being a sort of doughty little old woman, don't we? Who was sort of cooking and uh, cooking until she dies, sort of thing. But actually, she was she was very young when she died. And it was her husband, Sam Beaton, who then sort of built the, the Mrs. Beaton brand, and then that, he sold that, and that just the whole. She she was a brand really. But what she what she did, she was a journalist, and so she did a lot of sort of cutting and pasting, and that was her thing really. She was a brilliant. I mean, today we'd call her a curator. But she curated all of this information, much of it with Eliza Acton's, and just sort of repackaged it. So I think that Eliza Acton has been lost, really, in the in the long dark shadow of of Mrs. Beaton. Uh, and it yeah, it's it's been wonderful to see how enthusiastic people have been about her. But actually, when you talk to chefs and food writers, they all know exactly who she is and they know how important she is in the in the history of food writing. It's really just the wider audience that aren't as familiar with her as they are with Mrs. Beaton, say. So how do you think Eliza Acton should be remembered in the in the world of food history? Well, I think she should be remembered as the well, I mean I, the first modern food writer, really. The first uh the first the first food writer catering for the so the, the new middle classes and and of course as inventor of the recipe which she was the other thing that is so refreshing about her book and marks it out from all the books of her predecessors is her ability to teach and I, the, so the three things that she brings to this to this sort of cookery writing are First of all, that she's she's actually got a bit of experience travelling in Italy and France, so she's sort of familiar with some of these um, new ingredients, and she's obviously got a, 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 takes pleasure in food. The other thing is that she's been a poet, so she can write, which is enormously helpful because her prose is so beautiful, and she actually makes you want to cook from her recipes. But the third thing is that with her background as a, a teacher, she'd run this girls' school and then become a sort of governess. She has this sort of hand-holding voice all the way through her recipes. So again, for the the new <clears throat> the newly married the newly married woman who is trying to um, you know sort of uh, en- entertain her her husband's guests with a delicious menu, you know she feels as though Eliza Acton is sort of holding her hand all the way through. And I think that's something that a lot of us felt when when someone like Delia Smith started writing. Um, you know, that there was someone there who was taking us through every single step. And it's very, very reassuring. And I think that's because she had trained as a uh, as a teacher and a governess. What are the benefits and the challenges of writing about a, a real historical figure who there isn't a lot of information about? The, what, what it does for me as a writer is it gives me an immediate plot and characters. So I don't have to spend, you know, years and years thinking about a plot because I've got my plot and I've got my characters, really. I've got the main ones anyway. So I've got Eliza Acton and I can put together a character based on, you know, what she left. And I've got a structure because I have a few, uh, you know, a few facts about her life and I know what she did. So so that's really nice because that means then I can concentrate on things that probably really interests me like the research and trying to sort of slip under her skin and understand what it was like to be uh, a woman with ambition 
uh, at a time when women were definitely not supposed to have ambition, what it was like to be a woman who had you know, appetites, who enjoyed food, at a time when women were really not supposed to enjoy anything to do with their bodies, including food. So, so she, yeah, she let she helps me to think, and I'm not sure that I would have come up with a character like her just out of my own imagination. Um, um, maybe other better writers would have done, but I would have, I would have struggled. But I absolutely i love 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 the research and and that's probably that's the great joy for me so um that's why i love writing about about people like eliza acton um do you have another historical novel on the horizon um no i don't actually i'm i it takes quite a long time for me to find someone who I really, really, really want to write about because it takes me. I do. I spend you know several years on the the research, uh, and it needs to be someone that I want living inside my head for you know several years. So they have to really strike a chord, and I have to feel that you know I'm the right person to write their story. And I've, in a way, I think these sort of women from the past. They sort of find, it's going to sound slightly odd, but I think they sort of find you. So I read, you know, hundreds of biographies, but a lot of them, they don't, I I think, I think that, you know, they're not, they're not, something is is not speaking to me, which I think, okay, you know, they don't want me to write about them. So that's not right. So I sort of spend a lot of time casting around and then, and then I'll find one and, and the story will just, just grab me and then I can't let it go. So I'm waiting to be grabbed, Emma. (laughs) (laughs) That was Annabelle Abbs. Her novel, The Language of Food, is out now, published by Simon & Schuster. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.